I've tried to, so far in our Bible class, ground our worship in the gospel, noting that our entry point into worship is the gospel. So the way that we come to worship God is by responding favorably to the good news about Jesus and the establishment of his kingdom. But the gospel goes on then to inform the shape and the content of our worship. And, and we need to think about our, what we do here on Sunday as a response to the gospel, but even more as a participation in the gospel. Because as we respond to the gospel, Jesus does something to us, right? He, he changes our status from those who are rebels against God to those who are friends of God. He changes us from individuals who reject the lordship of Jesus and his rule to those who actually participate in it. So as we read books like Revelation, what's interesting is that Jesus shares his kingship with his followers. So if you watch any sort of movies where someone becomes the king or the ruler, what usually happens? Well, based on my observation of fantasy literature and a little bit of actual history, when someone becomes a king, they only are able to become a king through people who help them. And as soon as they become king, what do they do to those people? They cut them off. They're worried that they're going to be betrayed. And so, so they have this really harsh rule and reign that is all about them and doesn't invite anyone to participate in it other than as like, you know, beat up slaves and these sorts of things. Well, when Jesus became king, he invites us into that kingship. And we see this in the book of Revelation. Paul talks about these things in terms of us ruling and reigning with Christ. And that is based in something that we call the doctrine of the priesthood of the believer. Okay, so hopefully you've heard that term before. Um, I want to add to it a little bit to talk about it in terms of a royal priesthood or as a kingdom of priests. So that phrase kingdom of priests sort of rolls off the tongue because we've heard it a lot, whether it's about Israel in the Old Testament or the church in the New Testament. But we sometimes miss the royal imagery there. We're a kingdom of priests, and there's a certain amount of kingship that we receive from Christ that goes along with our priestly role. Uh, so we need to trace this, this kingdom of priests, through its canonical and covenantal development. Okay, so what I'm trying to say there is we need to start with creation and work our way up until the present to be able to know what it means to say that we are a kingdom of priests. All right, so we'll start with creation here. And of course, as we go, if you have questions along the way, just shout them out. It's, I, I am doing sort of a lecture thing, I guess, but feel free to, to say something or ask questions or, or give feedback. Uh, but when we start in creation, from the very beginning, we see that every human person is a worshiper of something. And originally, mankind, men and women, humans were created to worship God. So we are by our very nature worshiping beings and we either worship the true God or we worship idols. And if you worship false gods, idols, you're an idolater, but idolaters are worshipers. And so it's not really a matter of whether or not we're going to be a worshiping creature. It's a matter of who are we going to worship? Uh, so there's this guy, Richard Lentz, who wrote a book on the image of God, and he says this, that the shape of the canonical story suggests that the overriding relation of the image, that is humans, to the original, the triune God, is that of worship, 
honor, completion, and satisfaction, and conversely suggests that the subverting of that relationship of image to original is that of perversion, corruption, consumption, and possession. So the point that I'm trying to make here is that from the very beginning, we were made in a way that the climax of who we are, so our self-actualization, if we want to use some psychology terms, our self-actualization comes when we worship God rightly. That's when we're complete and full and we reach our purpose. And that's part of what we do when we gather on Sundays is to do that together. Because, well, this is getting off script, but part of being the image of God, it's true that you are individually the image of God, but only kind of, because it's only when we are together that we more fully bear out the image of God. So think Genesis 1, 26 and 27, he made mankind in the image of God. In the image of God, he created them. And so there's this way that we are individually God's image, but there's also a way that we find the fullness of our image-bearing capacity when we come together. And, and when we come together to reach our ultimate end, to worship God, that's when we realize our identity most fully and thickly, okay? So what, all I'm trying to say is that we are made as worshiping people. And we can deny that, but it doesn't change the reality. And, and when we realize we're worshiping people and that we worship different things, whether that's your video games or, you know, Artemis or some other false god, whatever it might be, we become like the thing that we worship. So there's this guy named Greg Beale who wrote a really thick book called We Become What We Worship. I think that's the title. And his point is that the, because we're imaging creatures, think of yourself like a mirror. And what you orient yourself towards and what you give yourself towards is what you start to reflect. So when you start to worship idols that can't see or speak or touch, you become like that. You become less of a person. You've become a shell of what you were created to be. So we're worshiping people. Um, but there's this interesting way that we're described as worshiping people. We are made in the image and likeness of God. Okay, I, I can't get into this too much because this would take over the whole time. But when, when I was doing my THM project, I did it on the image and likeness of God. And these two terms, for those of you who care about Hebrew, Salem and Demuth, the, these have sonship and kingship connotations. Okay, so one emphasizes sonship and one emphasizes kingship. And these two things come together to demonstrate the way that we relate to the world and the way that we relate to God. And it's in sonship, kingly, priestly terms. So we're king, priest, sons. So if we could hyphen everything, king, priest, sons. And that's a theme that we're going to pick up along the way. And that's inherent in our identity as the image and likeness of God. And, and while those things are synonymous, synonyms are used for a reason, and that's because they bring additional elements to, to the imagery, right? So we're, we're image and likeness, we're sung, son and king. And these two things come together in a priestly way. So functionally, uh, though we can't, I can't take the time to prove it here, image bearers are understood as priest kings. That's true with the language there, and it's also true in the way that this language is used in the ancient Near East. People who are the image of the God was usually the king who also functioned as a priest. Uh, so we're created to mediate God's rulership over the world. That's our kingly role. And to relate to God directly, that's our priestly role, particularly by tending to the garden. 
I'll talk about this more, but priests have two, two directions of responsibility. One is on this sort of horizontal level, and that's bearing witness of God outward and an upward vertical level, and that's to relate to God. Uh, so we very, in the core of our identity as image bearers, are intended to nurture our relationship with God through worship, fellowship, and obedient love as a means of properly imaging God to the world. So according to God's original creative design, we are all intended to worship the creator. All right, I think we get this. I don't think we're going to dispute that. Um, and as we know, tragically, Adam and Eve failed to maintain love and loyalty and trust with their covenantal God. So there, there are these priest kings in the garden. The garden is pictured as a temple. They're to keep the garden. They're to guard it. Uh, but they let, this, they let this snake in, right? They've, and they try to overthrow God. So instead of recognizing God's kingship, that their kingship is based on, they try to overthrow God. So they're exiled from Eden and their status as royal priests is compromised. However, that royal kingly priesthood then is reestablished in God's covenant with Abram or Abraham down the road. And Abraham is described in royal terms. I don't know if you realize that, but he is referred to by other people as a prince. Um, God promises to him that there will be kings who come from his family line. And Abraham relates to others in a priestly way. He does this initially when he creates an altar and he calls upon the name of the Lord or he invokes the name of the Lord. And then obviously what might come to mind, you know, most clearly is when he offers Isaac as a sacrifice before the Lord. You have this guy who's a ruler, who's kingly, and who acts in a priestly way. So he adopts this king priest role that was originally given to Adam and is now passed on to Abram. And that role is ultimately used to worship God and to invite others to worship God. So do you remember Abraham has this army of like 325 warriors? Were those his children? No, these are people who were guessing were previously pagan, but Abram has witnessed God to them and he's brought them into that covenantal relationship. So next, then we build on Abraham. So if we're tracking the, the story, Adam, Eve, original king, priest, and then you kind of get Noah there. Noah's sort of that way, isn't he? Uh, he's a king who declares judgment on the world, and he uh, sacrifices as soon as he gets off the ark, doesn't he? And, and then he's given more kingly responsibility, which is to protect life. So if, if an animal or a person kills someone, their life should be required of them. So you have this king-priest role there as well. But then it's more particularly given in Abraham. But then it's picked up with Israel. So this is the next major progression of the redemptive story. God appoints Israel with the language of the firstborn son. That, that's interesting. He, he creates a firstborn son who's called to worship God and to be a kingdom of priests. That's the language that God uses. I'm, I'm raising up my firstborn son to be a kingdom of priests. So what was started with Adam is reinvigorated with Israel. So as a whole, as a nation, Israel's pictured is this new humanity, this new son that's going to function as God's king and God's priest. And I think that we can say that every member of that covenantal community was a kingly priest, a royal priest. They had that individual identity, but it really comes to its fullest when they're together as a functioning nation. So in the same way that our 
capacity as image bearers, our identity as image bearers is more full when we're together. The same is true for Israel. Every covenant member, a king priest, but it's only really fully realized when the nation is operating as a whole. So they have responsibilities to bear witness to the nation of their covenantal God. They had a responsibility to enter the land and to rule over it. Okay, so I, th I think we're tracking. This is a thread that's coming through the Old Testament. It's going to extend to the new. But before we consider this new humanity, the church that functions as a kingdom of priests, I think it's important for us to note that the, just because every member of the covenant is a kingly priest or a royal priest, that doesn't mean there isn't a particularization of kingship and priesthood in the old covenant. Okay, so if we can say it's true that every person is part of this kingdom of priests, that doesn't mean there are no kings or priests. Now, when, it's, when we're talking about the old covenant, I think it's really easy to say, yeah, that makes sense because we see people like King David and we see a high priest like Aaron. What, what I want you to grab onto is the concept that even though every person is, has priesthood and kingship, there is particularized kingship and priesthood in an office of king and priest that is really representative of the diminutive form of that kingship and priesthood held by everybody. Does this make sense? Okay, I know we had work day yesterday, so if it doesn't make sense, that's not on you, and, and maybe it's just on me, but all I'm trying to say is that you can simultaneously say that everybody is a king and priest, but also there is one king and one priest that functions more in a more particular role, okay? That's going to help us when we come to the, the new covenant, so keep that in your mind. Uh, but before we can get to the New Testament, there's one priest-king figure that outshines all of the rest and that then sets the trajectory for everyone who will follow, and that, of course, is Jesus Christ. Okay, so if, if you're tracking covenantal redemptive history, you have Adam and Eve, creation covenant, where these things are true, and then you have Noah, Noahic covenant, where this is true, and then you have Israel at the... Mosaic Covenant, we could call it, where this is true. And then it starts to get particularized, right? Now it's narrowed down to one family line with David in the Davidic Covenant. And David is pictured over and over again as a king and as a priest, isn't he? Do you recall when David flees his son and he like does some stuff with showbread, right? I think that's the case. Um, he, he's pictured in a priestly way. He does priestly type things. And, and even in the way he talks about himself in the Psalms, you sort of get the idea that David is in the line of Melchizedek, this king priest. Okay, so it's narrowed to David, but then it's narrowed even further to Jesus, to one individual. So where it started with Adam and then expands, it's now narrowed again to Jesus, who is the, the final Adam, right? He's the last Adam. And, and it's going to expand down the road when we hit the church, but Jesus changes the tune for everything. Okay, so I'll just read here. Just as Israel was designated as Yahweh's firstborn son and only recognized as such after passing through the waters of the Reed Sea. Okay, I'm going to give you something for free. Sometimes I like to do this. In most translations, it's referred to as the Red Sea. And that is incorrect, okay? The, and, and that is because the, the word for sea, or the word for 
that's often translated red, is an Egyptian loan word that means read. And uh, the sea is like not as big of a sea as you might think if you're thinking of like an ocean or something. And, and there are lots of reeds in these sorts of things. And so it's named the Reed Sea in Egyptian. And where did Moses get his education? Well, Egypt. And so we don't have any surprise that there are Egyptian loan words that are brought into these things. So it should be Reed Sea, okay? And that doesn't matter for anything we're talking about, but it's a point of biblical instruction that I think we all need to know. Uh, so call, if you want to be more biblical or, or maybe just pretentious, next time you're talking about it, talk about the Reed Sea. And when someone corrects you, say, uh-uh, there, it's, the re, it's the Reed Sea. It's an Egyptian loan word. So, but the point being that Israel is recognized as a nation truly, and as God's firstborn son after they pass through the sea, okay? And, and Paul picks up on this in the language of baptism. So he'll talk about these sorts of things as a, a type of baptism that's yet to come. Well, so too Jesus is recognized as God's beloved son following his baptism, as the one and only son. And this, the translation of this word is just very debated. I, I don't know how we should translate it. Um, the guy I'm studying with translates it as the one and only son. Other people translate it as the only begotten son or the one unique son. But the point is that Jesus takes Israel's role as the firstborn son. It's, it's the same language. And he, he is the firstborn son in the most true of ways. Because wherever Israel abandons their father, Jesus declares the Father. He witnesses truly as a priest and as a king. So from the very beginning, Jesus was understood in priestly terms as the one who reveals God the Father. That's, that's the role of the priest, is to mediate the presence of God, who mediates on behalf of his people. So then he, he takes the request in, in the needs of his people to the Father and who sanctifies the people. That's what priests do, Right? Priests sanctify the people through the offering of sacrifices. But in addition, Jesus was understood in kingly or royal terms, having been anointed and having authority over all things. So I think I just have having over all things. He just was over all things. Okay, he's the king. And different gospels point these realities out in different ways. So I think in the gospel of John, Jesus is pictured in more priestly ways than in other gospels. But in the synoptic gospels, I think Jesus is pictured in more kingly terms from the very beginning. So in the birth narrative, who is Jesus set against? King Herod. Well, we recognize there's a new king coming. And in the Gospels, Jesus declares the kingdom of God. That's the thing Jesus talks about most is the kingdom of God. Well, in, in the Gospel of John, the thing he talks about most is eternal life. And these things are somewhat synonymous. But when you think of a priestly role, the priest dealt with the very thing of life, which is the blood of the sacrifices, right? So, so John, I think, gives us a more priestly vision of Jesus. The other Gospels give us a more kingly vision of Jesus, but in it all, Jesus is the new Adam, the new priest king, the true and better Adam. Luke makes this really clear for us in Luke 3, where, where he traces Jesus's genealogy. And he starts with his father, Joseph, right? But he works all the way back, hitting David and Abraham, getting to Adam. And then ultimately, he says that Jesus is the son of God. 
So there's this tracing of Jesus is the one who stands in continuity with this priest-king role from the beginning of creation. There are other places we could look to prove this. One letter in particular would be Hebrews. If you read Hebrews, I don't think there's a more clear articulation of Jesus as the king priest in the line of Melchizedek who is both priest and sacrifice. That's why he's a different kind of priest. But even in that, as we'll get into in a moment, he shows us what kind of sacrifice we ought to be. Now, our sacrifice can't, can't atone for sin, but we're called to be priests who are themselves a living sacrifice. So we follow in the stead of Jesus. And in fact, our sacrifice and our priesthood is only there by virtue of our connection to Jesus. That's the kind of stuff we're going to get into here with the church. But any, any question so far? Okay, I, I want to talk about how this relates to the church and then get into its implications for our worship. Okay, so whatever can be said about the church is a kingdom of priests, and Peter does this. He says, you are a kingdom of priests that cannot be divided from Christ's own work as the ultimate priest king. And this is really important for us to grasp uh, because the church doesn't just replace Israel. Jesus replaced Israel, and, and we're connected to Jesus. So Jesus is the true Adam, he's the true Israel, and whatever role Israel had that we take on, we take on by virtue of our connection to Jesus. So we are not replacing this, you know, old covenant people of God. Instead, Jesus did that, who is the mediator of the new covenant, and there's a new covenant people who take on Israel's role except into a global way, and into an effective way by virtue of the work of Jesus Christ. So as I'm trying to say, Christians are identified as a kingdom of priests only because of their organic connection to their head, Jesus Christ. All right. I think we get that. If, if we don't have Jesus, you're not a, a priest king anymore. You, you have the image of God. You are the image of God, whether you are a Christian or a non-Christian. But the efficacious nature of the image of God priest kingship is, is gone. It, it's not there. It's not doing anything because we're not reflecting God anymore apart from Christ. We're reflecting idols. And so that we start to mediate false worship. And, and so whatever priest-king role we have that's good is by virtue of our connection to Jesus. Now, because this royal priesthood stands in, stands in continuity with the preceding covenants, and because there was a role for a particularization of these roles within the community, it shouldn't be a surprise to us that even though the church is now a kingdom of priests, that there is a particularization in, to some extent of kingship and priesthood in the church. Okay, so I want to point out that, uh, well, at least I grew up critiquing other denominations for denying the priesthood of the believer because they had the office of a priest. And is, we, we can and should critique other denominations, but we need to do so with truth, right? And, and we need to be able to say, while our Anglican brothers and sisters or, or Lutherans or whatever might have priesthood, like an office of a priest, it's not because they're denying this doctrine. They're just connecting the new covenant to the old covenant in a, in a closer way, such that there's a particularization of this role, okay? So um, when we talk about the priesthood of the believer being a Baptist distinctive, 
the way we work it out is distinct. The belief in it is not distinct. So, so uh, one of my best friends is an Anglican. He is not denying that all Christians are priestly kings or kingly priests, however you want to say it. And I think as we start to recognize the way that our church is different from other gospel preaching churches in our area, we need to critique them truly and critique them well. Um, and we need to avoid this overgeneralization in our critique. I mentioned this just because we're talking about the priesthood of the believer, and there's really no other time to talk about these sort of things. Um, but, but pay close attention to the way that these things are charted throughout the Bible. Now, I think in the way that we're reading the New Testament, we're going to find a particularization of these roles in a different way than the you know, appointment of a priest over a congregation or something like that. In addition, in the same way that Israel's position as a kingdom of priests is most vibrantly represented when they're together, the same is true for the church. You by yourself are a kingly priest, but a shadowy kingly priest, if that makes sense, or a thin kingly priest. And it's when we come together that, that we become a kingdom of priests that we bear out those roles more fully and more thickly. This comes into play, particularly when we start to use the language of our bodies as a temple of the Holy Spirit. We hear this throughout the New Testament, but generally when it says that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit, it's a plural you. And we're, we're not in the South, so we don't preach it. Y'all are a temple of the Holy Spirit, but maybe that's how we should say it. So to help us recognize that our priestly kingship is most efficacious, if that makes sense, or it's most vibrantly realized when we're together. And that's why there's no conception of a king priest apart from the rest of God's people. We'll get to that more, but you should already be starting to see its implications for our corporate worship. Our, our worship is not about me, and it's not something that can take place by myself. Um, so, so I have a sibling who says that I communicate best with God and I worship God best in nature and so I don't need to go to a church to do that. Well, I, I get what's being said there and there's something that's really right about that. We, we can worship God in a unique way as we're, I don't know, out casting a fishing line into the water and observing creation and these sorts of things. But that's a confusion of what it means to have the priesthood of the believer. The priesthood of the believer was never intended to isolate us from the kingdom of priests. Instead, it was intended to draw us together as a sacred dwelling for God. All right. Does all of this make sense, Where what I'm saying so far? Okay. So let's get into the doctrine of the priesthood of the believer. Uh, we traced it in kind of its canonical or covenantal development, but let's put it in more uh, systematized terms. What does it mean for the church to be a kingdom of priests? What, what does it mean for the doctrine of the priesthood of believer for, to, be, you know, to be realized for Christians today? Well, there are several implications for this doctrine, and I'm drawing here, if it matters, from my Baptist heritage class that I took in college. And so you're, this is the Baptist application of the doctrine of the priesthood of the believer. If, if there's any question about it, um, this, this is the case. But um, I should also pause and say here, Bap Baptists were more distinct at the formation of the de denomination. But I think whenever we like form our own thing, we do it because we think we're right on that thing and we hope everyone starts to agree with us. Well, 
that happened with Baptists on a lot of these things. And so as you start to talk to your friends at non-denominational churches or in other churches, they're probably going to agree with you on almost all of these points. Okay, so as much as it is a Baptist distinctive, early on that might have been the case. It's less so now. Um, So just to help you as you talk to other people. Individual Christians, number one, have the ability and the right to interpret Scripture and I say not by private interpretation, but independent of a bishop or pope. As such, an intermediary for interpretation is not needed. However, this does not downplay the inherent nature of the scriptures as a community document. So you can see why, particularly during the time of the Reformation, the doctrine of the priesthood of the believer was really, really important. Most people didn't have the Bible in their own language right? It was in Latin, and they had a priest read it to them in Latin and then tell them what they needed to think. Well, one of the beauties of the Reformation was to say that God's word is for everyone, and we should try to get God's word in the common language, in in the common tongue. And that's why I'm in favor of more modern Bible translations. I think give people the Bible where they can just read it and, and understand it as easily as possible. Now, I also want to say that this doctrine has been abused time and time again, as individuals say, I have the ability to interpret scripture on my own. Therefore, I am not ever going to listen to what other people say the Bible means. And so you get individuals um, who say, I don't need a pastor. I don't need teaching. I don't need training. I don't need the church because I am a priest of God and can read the Bible on my own and no one can tell me what it means. Well, that, that is really off base given the nature of the scriptures. Was the New Testament documents, were, were these documents given to one individual? No. Over and over again, these things are written to the church. I mean, I guess we do have Luke that's written to Theophilus, but it's written with an eye to the larger community. And so for people to say, I my interpretation is right. And if you disagree with me, you're wrong. And in fact, I'm not even going to go to church. And if the pastor disagrees with my interpretation, he's wrong. That's an abuse of the doctrine of the priesthood of the believer. Um, even, even in this past week, we were talking to an individual who's, who's connected to someone who's reading the Bible on their own. And um, they, they have their interpretation of a text and they are looking for any online preacher who will agree with their interpretation of things. Well, that, that's a wrong way to exercise the priesthood of the believer. Number two, individual Christians have direct access to God. Therefore, individual Christians do not need a priest to gain access to God. This is true. So we don't need to come to a sacred man to give us access to God. Jesus is our intermediary. He's our high priest. Um, So there is a reason why we don't have, uh, you know, scheduled hours for a confessional booth where I sit on one side and you come in and pretend that I don't know who you are with this little screen and, and you confess your sins to me. Well, that, that's, a, that's something that our doctrine of the priesthood of the believer militates against. However, well, and you can see again how this was important for the Reformation, right? This, this is an important thing. Don't pay indulgences to you and all these sorts of things. You, you can talk to God 
by the Spirit because of the work of Jesus Christ. However, this too has been abused, and I think particularly within Baptist churches, to say, I do not need to confess my sins to one another, and I don't need other Christians as part of my relationship to Christ. Well, there's this guy, Diedrich Bonhoeffer, in this little book called Life Together, who says that the Christ in the other is stronger the Christ in the heart of the other is stronger than the Christ in my own heart. And what he's trying to say is that we have weak faith in Jesus and that when we come together, we witness Christ to one another. And there's something somewhat mystical, but genuinely spiritual where our relationship with Jesus is strengthened by our connection with other Christians. And in that way, that's actually a proper application of the priesthood of the believer. The priesthood of the believer on the one hand says, I don't need a particular guy to give me access to God. On the other hand, it says, we all have a responsibility to witness Christ to one another. So this works itself out in different ways. You know, James says things like confess your sins to one another. There is something right about confessing your sins to one another. And in the one that you confess it to saying something like, you have the forgiveness of God. So, so we know that individually, I can't, on the basis of who I am, declare you absolved of sin. But we can say, as one who's been welcomed into the priesthood of Christ, on the basis of Christ's atoning sacrifice as priest and sacrifice, you are forgiven of that sin. And, and I think that one of the dangers of these accountability groups that pop up everywhere is we lean into one side of the priesthood of the believer, which is, um, I, I know that I can confess my sin and I can say I've done something wrong. But we don't lean into the other side, which says you are absolved of your sin on the basis of Christ's atoning work. We need to hear that. Um, and, and this goes into your individual relationships. And I'll say I'm as bad as this as anybody else, but when someone confesses that they have sinned against me, I need to be able to say, I forgive you. And, and more importantly, you have God's forgiveness based on Jesus. Stop worrying about it. You, whatever, whatever sin you committed is covered by Christ. That's why we do these things like a corporate confession of sin, and then we say something like, you are forgiven. We affirm the forgiveness of Christ, not by virtue of anything that is in the person leading that prayer or that aspect of our worship, but by virtue of our position as priests who share in the priesthood of Jesus Christ. Number three, individual Christians have the responsibility to witness to unbelievers, and I think also to each other, about God. We have the responsibility to declare God to the nations. That was one of Israel's roles as a priest. Well, we have that role as well as a church, as a whole, and as individuals. Number four, the concluding idea then, is that the priesthood of the believer is more about service than status and more about responsibilities than rights. So our priesthood is not about my right to be a Christian by myself in, in isolation from all other Christians. It's actually about a responsibility to other Christians. My, my position as a priest is not about my connection to God that I can have in isolation. It's about my responsibility to bear Christ to the world. So the emphasis is Godward, the limitation is to believers, and the basis is the sacrifice of Christ and the illumination of the Spirit. Okay, let me pause there and see if there are any questions on, on that piece before we hit the final sex, section. 
Okay. I am just realizing that it's 1027. Every church is a kingdom of priests. So, so the church universal is a kingdom of priests, in, in, but the church local is the visible expression of that royal priesthood. Now, we sometimes apply this in personal terms, sometimes in polity terms. So we believe in some form of congregationalism. We don't have like elder rule or something like that that's influenced by this belief. Um, but um, ultimately, this fleshes itself out. This priesthood of the believer fleshes itself out in worship. I want to cover two negative implications for corporate worship. The first is that the priesthood of the believer does not flatten out the gathered assembly such that there are no distinctive offices. So the priesthood of the believer does not mean that there are no pastors or deacons of the church. That, that's not true. Second, the priesthood of the believer does not flatten out the gathered assembly such that there's not a recognition of distinctive gifting, abilities, or desire. So what the priesthood of the believer does not mean is that everyone is exactly the same and we function exactly the same in every way. It's just not that case that everyone is a royal priest in the same way. We're gifted in different ways. And that means that we're going to operate in the larger life of the church in different ways. But the particularization of different gifts will show up in different people. And so we'll have different people leading music. And it's not wrong to have a music leader. Okay, that's not a violation of priesthood, of priesthood of the believer. It's not wrong to have these roles kind of formed in, in unique people. Well, we should say that everyone has the opportunity to do that, but we lean into the gifting of the Spirit and, and we serve the church in those ways. Positively, um, well, we're, we're out of time here, unfortunately. I, what I plan to do then is to pick up on, on these implications for corporate worship next week. I apologize. I thought I had, I had nailed this because we were also going to this week talk about what it means for children and for men and women in the church. And I thought that's going to be its own thing. Let's just cut it in half. But apparently I'm getting too wordy. So we'll pick up here um, and, and then we'll bridge into that next section next week.